Is the Bible true? He was an educated journalist, educated in journalism and law. His career was writing for the Chicago Tribune, a major paper in Chicago. He was the law or legal editor. He was an atheist, and his wife was an agnostic. He was a classic, hard-driving, hard-living journalist. Of course, his life wasn't perfect, but he was a success by the standards we normally call success. He was doing pretty well, and things were going along normally for he and his wife. That is, until she was invited by a friend to go to church. She resisted. She was an agnostic. But uh, something came up that was special at the church, and so she agreed to go in part just to get her friend off her back. And she went. wasn't as bad as she thought. She went back. Eventually, she actually placed her faith in Jesus Christ and was baptized and, of course, invited her husband to the baptism. And as special events came up at church, she started inviting her husband to the church and he would come. Uh, It wasn't as bad as he thought it would be, but he didn't particularly like it. And as she continued to talk to him about her faith and as he saw a change in her own life and lifestyle... He became curious, and he said, well, you know, I know how to do investigations. That's my training. I'm going to investigate. So he began to investigate the Bible, and particularly Jesus. And the longer he investigated this, the more interested he became. And uh, to make a long story short, Lee Strobel ended up accepting Christ as his Lord and Savior and wrote a book about that. It's called The Case for Christ. Many of you have heard of it. He eventually quit his job at the Chicago Tribune and actually went to work for the church. He was so active in that. Since then, he's written his book, The Case for Faith, and has spoken literally all around the world about his change from being an atheist to being a follower of Jesus. Now, last week, we began this series that's going for six weeks. This is the second week. We said this series is going to be called God Questions, and we asked the question, is God real? And we looked at some evidence that can encourage our faith in the reality of God. And some of you are in small group Bible studies, and you were working on those questions this week and uh, various ways that we can look at the evidence for God. This morning, we're going to move along. We're not letting any grass grow under our feet in this series. And we're going to talk about, is the Bible real or is the Bible true? Next week, please pray for me. I'm looking forward to this one. We're going to ask the question, do all roads lead to heaven? That's a good one. That's a very common question. And we're going to wrestle with that next Sunday, so I encourage you to be back. But this morning, I would like to talk to you about the Bible, and I would like for you to have a Bible with you. So in the front of you, there's a Bible in the pew. Pull it out. Now, if you, if there's not enough for everybody, I'd like for the ushers to get up. Ushers, stand up here. We're going to need your help. Raise your hand if you need a Bible. Just, uh, Bill's going to help you out. We've got plenty of Bibles in the room. I want you to be holding a Bible, okay? Everybody got a Bible? Here's a hand. Somebody needs a Bible back here. Ushers, we need some Bibles. Thank you, Bill. Um, anybody missing a Bible? We've got plenty. Everybody over here got a Bible? Let's see if all these uh, Southsiders have a Bible. Raise your Bible up, would you? Okay. Good. The Centralists here, you all got a Bible? Good. I like this. And... Uh, the Northsiders, do you all have a Bible? You noticed I didn't say left or right or stayed away from that. 
Uh, is the Bible true? Well, of course, yes. In some ways, I'm preaching to the choir. And this morning, I really feel like you and I are standing at the base of Mount Whitney. And I'm saying to you, look, gang, by noon, we're going to be up on the mountain. <laughs> or perhaps we're standing on the Pacific Coast shore and we're looking out toward Hawaii and saying, okay, gang, by noon we're going to swing to swim to Hawaii. I mean, this is an enormous subject to talk about the Bible in just a few minutes. But let's begin. I think we can cover some ground this morning. And I, I want you, you to have this with you if you like to take notes. Get something to write with and get set. We're going to go through a I'm going to give you a lot of facts right away. Later on, we're going to open up our Bibles and look at some scriptures. So that's a little bit about uh, where we're going this morning as we seek to answer the question, is the Bible true? Now, I want to start with Proverbs chapter 30, and we're going to put this on the screen. I'm going to ask you to read this with me. Would you read this scripture from Proverbs 30? And it's also in your outline, so don't worry about jotting this down. Let's read. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. The Bible claims to be, now get ready to write, because here we go. The Bible claims to be flawless. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. The word flawless means without imperfection, blemish, or defect. Now, here are some quick facts that I want to give you about the Bible. And as we start, the first one is the Bible is unique. I believe that this is a unique book. There's no other book like it. The Koran is not like the Bible. The Bhagavad Gita is not like the Bible. The Vedas are not like the Bible. The Book of Mormon is different from the Bible. Uh, Dianetics is not the Bible, and it's not like the Bible. Uh, all of these other books that people turn to in their faith, I would claim this morning this is a unique book. It is unlike those books. How so? Well, first of all, it was written over a 1,600-year or more period by 40-plus authors. You know some of the authors, or you know of them. Moses, Samuel, David, Ezra, Daniel, Isaiah, Matthew, Mark, Paul. You're familiar with the names of these people. They all had different backgrounds. They were leaders of nations. They were prophets. They were priests. They were judges. They were tax collectors. They were fishermen. All this variety of characters with various backgrounds have come together under the inspiration of God to write the Bible. Now, where are we? Number four. They've written it in three different languages, primarily Hebrew and Greek, but also with a little Aramaic. And yet, from the beginning chapter to the ending chapter, there is continuity. There is unmistakable continuity and agreement in the scriptures from cover to cover. There is an internal consistency within the Bible. So the Bible is unique. It's unique in its composition. It's also unique in its circulation. I think this is kind of cool, but um, it's, it's the single most published book in the history of the world. No other book has been published as much as the Bible. Billions and billions of copies have been published and distributed around the world. Show me another book that has stayed on the bestseller book, not for bestseller list, not just for weeks 
or months or even a year or two, but not just for decades, but for centuries, the Bible is the bestseller around the world. The most popular book in the world, we could say. Now, thirdly, in its translation, the Bible is unique. It is the single most translated book in the world. Christianity Today just recently put out an article on Bible translation uh, societies, and I think if my memory serves me correct, I know the number was over 2,000, I think they said the Scripture has been translated in whole or in part to about 2,400 languages. No other Scripture, no other book has ever been translated into so many languages. There, in fact, as you know, groups like Wycliffe and others, there's a whole army of people right now as we talk working on translating the Scriptures into yet more languages. So it's the most widely translated book in the world. And then also, the Bible is unique in its durability. We, and again, each one of these could be illustrated in so many ways, but think about the fact it has survived bans, burning, ridicule, and criticism. Emperors, kings have tried to put out the Bible. They've made it illegal. People have risked their lives to bring the Bible to other people. It's a very durable book. Also, in its effect upon people, uh, as you read the Bible, and this, this part I think is not in your notes, but as you read the Bible, it has a powerful, powerful effect on people. Think of this. The Bible has stopped people from committing suicide. It's stopped them from committing divorce. It's stopped them from committing sin. Any amen there? <laughs> it stopped them com- from considering, uh, co- committing sin. It stopped us from committing violence. It stops all kinds of wrong behavior as you read the Bible. Bible reading encourages the sick. It comforts the grieving. It gives hope to the hopeless. It creates faith in those who have no faith just from reading the Bible. Reading the Bible and responding to the Spirit of God as you read the Bible can literally change your life. It's changed millions of lives. And so the Bible has a powerful effect on people. And another comment, uh, most books you read and you're done with them and you put them aside. A few you return to over and over. We call them reference books. But nobody has ever through with the Bible, are they? You don't, even the scholars we have among us who have studied, given their lives at the seminary studying the Bible, they don't reach a point and say, well, I'm done with that now. It just never happens. It's a unique book. And we're never really through with it. And I encourage you to read it. But uh, you won't be through with it. Now, it, it, um, I think we're back into your notes here. It uh, is unique because it alters the view of the world. If you become a Bible reader, it is going to change your world view. Not only that, it changes your relating patterns. Just this past week, I was talking to a couple that's going to get married. As part of our premarital counseling, they have to read the Scriptures. Now, uh, one of these persons has never read the Bible, and so he was teasing me later. He said, well, Steve, you finally got me to read the Bible. And I said, yeah, I did, because I asked the couple to read Genesis 1 and 2 and to pay a special attention to verse 24 in chapter 2 where it says, for this reason, marriage, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And we spent probably 10, 15 minutes talking about the verbs there. What does that verse mean that's repeated throughout Scripture and by Jesus? And we talked about the value of that single verse for couples getting married and all the wisdom that's in that verse. 
the Bible will change the way you relate to people. Uh, what else? It changes their values and ethics. Amen, Glenn? It changes their values and ethics. Uh, Dr. Stassen, who's back with us, has taken just from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that sermon where Jesus started each point with a B. He's taken from the Sermon on the Mount and written so that you and I can live differently based on the Beatitudes. And uh, Glenn calls his book Living the Sermon on the Mount. It changes our values and ethics as we read it. Not only that, it changes our vocabulary. It can turn your cursing into blessing. It can leave, uh, remove the gossip from your mouth and put grace in your mouth if you will read it and use it. And it changes your view of eternity. Are you getting writer's cramp yet? Not, not yet. Uh, so we're saying the Bible is unique, and I think you have to grant me that. There are very few, if any other, books that you could hold up and say, this is a unique book, and it's unique in these following ways, in its circulation, in its publication, in its translation. But let's move to a little different question now. Is the Bible accurate? Is the Bible true? After all, the Bible has been copied down through the ages. It's been handed over and over again. It's moved from one language to another language to another language. Is the Bible, as we have it now, actually reliable? Is it accurate? Is it true? That's a a great question, and let me uh, touch on it briefly. The Bible was written, as we said a moment ago, in Hebrew and Greek and a little bit in Aramaic. So those three languages, we would say, are the original languages of the Bible, Hebrew Aramaic and Greek. Now, let's talk about the Old Testament for a minute. The Talmudin were meticulous in copying the Bible. Now, in the old days, you didn't have a computer that you could print out, you know, your text, and you didn't have a copy machine that you could put it on and copy it. So how did you get from one text to another? Well, the word Talmudin means students, and these were students who copied the Bible. The Masoretes were even more meticulous than the Talmudin. Let me tell you a bit about the Masoretes. As they would copy the scripture, and remember, it wasn't on a page like this, but on a scroll, a, there would be an individual who would have that responsibility of copying from this page to the next page or from this scroll to the next scroll. And that was his job. Now, in order to make sure that he did it correctly, a different group of people, after he was done with that scroll, they would check the scroll. And they were so concerned that they would know on this scroll that there should be this many words. They would number the not only the chapters and verses, they would number the words and syllables. And they would count the numbers left to right, right to left. They would start in the middle and count out. It was an amazingly detailed procedure that they had devised. Why? Because they wanted it to be exactly right. And if they found more than three errors, we'd call them today typos, if they found more than three, you know what they did with the scroll? They threw it away. Start over. That's how concerned they were that the Word of God was correctly handed down. The old manuscripts they tended to get rid of because they didn't want somebody abusing them or misusing them. And so there was this enormous careful detail by these men, and they were men, who would copy the Scriptures and hand them down to us. They were very meticulous. Now, in the New Testament, obviously we didn't have scribes, but as a letter or gospel came to a church, they valued that enormously, and what did they do? They would read it out loud, some would memorize it, and others would copy it down and send it on to other churches. They also were very careful. 
Now, I want to go to this next point and, and take a minute to demonstrate um, what this means to us. The New Testament, as you think about the copies of the New Testament, nobody can say, well, here's the original book of an Old Testament book. Nobody can say to you, well, here's the original Gospel of Matthew. I wish we had it, but we don't. So we're, we're left to trust the copies that people have made. How many copies are there? Well, some have questioned the accuracy of the New Testament, the bias of these writers. But again, uh, these men, believing this was God's Word, treated it with the utmost respect. And not only that, we're not talking about a person or two. We're talking about a group of people that were all committed to shepherding this along so that it's right. Now, let me give you this figure. The New Testament has about 24,000 manuscripts to compare to. 24,000. That's a huge number of full or partial manuscripts. When you think of other writings, for example, I'm going to give you some, the writings of Caesar. We don't question whether or not Caesar existed and wrote. How much did he write? How much do we have of what he wrote? Well, I'm going to put this graph up to, on, the, on the screen. You, if you squint or sit on the front row, you can see it. Feel free to move up. You're always welcome up close. But let me, that first line says Caesar. He's the author. He lived about 100 to 44 B.C. The earliest writings we have that go back to Caesar are from A.D. 900. So there's about a thousand years between when Caesar lived and we have his first writings. Are you with me? How many copies of Caesar's writings do we have, ancient copies? About ten. Now, let's go to Plato. He lived 427 to 347 B.C. Again, the earliest copies we have of his writings date back to about A.D. 900. That's a gap of about 1,200 years between when he lived and his earliest writings that we have. And we have seven copies of Plato. Uh, Aristotle, 450 to 385 B.C., his, again, A.D. 900 are the most, uh, the oldest ones we have. There's about 1,400 years between when Aristotle lived and the writings we have, the earliest writings we have of Aristotle. There were 49 copies. Now, you, you see the direction we're going? Two more examples. Homer's Iliad is the most, we have the most copies of any ancient litter of Homer and the Iliad. Homer lived about 900 B.C., and the earliest copy we have goes all the way back to 400 B.C., so a long time ago, and that's pretty close, only a 500-year gap between his life and the writings. We have 643 copies, or these, some of them partial, some of them complete. Now, what about the New Testament? What number did I just give you? 24,000. And these writers wrote roughly between A.D. 40 and A.D. 100, and the oldest copies we have go back to about A.D. 125, so there's a gap of only about 25 years. And we have, of ancient manuscripts and copies, some 24,000. Is the New Testament reliable? I think so. Is it accurate? Yes. That was their highest goal, to preserve it and preserve it accurately. So, there's some facts for you. Now, what about the, our translations? Uh, as you, I hope, know, the English Bible is translated directly from the original languages. Now, why, do, why is that important? Well, it's important because the people, you're holding this Bible, it says NRSV, New Revised Standard Version. We are blessed in our country and in the Western world to have all the translations and versions and paraphrases we can possibly read, more than we can read. But the point I'm trying to make here is that these scholars, as they 
put this into the language and the ways in which uh, they thought it should most accurately come to us. These scholars, they didn't go back to, say, uh, French Bibles and study the French Bibles, which were from Latin Bibles, which were from Greek or Syriac Bibles. You see, what I'm saying is, this came to us, these men and women opened up the Greek texts and the Hebrew texts and brought it straight to English. It didn't go through generations of other languages. And that's what I'm saying. And again, that's another reason why we have so much faith in, in its reliability. It came directly from the original languages. Well, take a deep breath. Whew. Sit up. You want, are you okay? I've been throwing a lot at you. I understand. But I think some of this is helpful as we think about this. There is yet another way to answer the question, is the Bible true? I want to talk briefly about uh, prophecy. Now, I'm skipping over history. We could talk about the historical accuracy of the Bible. I'm just not doing that today. We had to draw some lines somewhere. But let's talk about prophecy for a minute. Someone, not Steve, because I wouldn't be interested in this sort of thing, but somebody counted up and said there are 332 prophecies about Jesus. That would be prophecies that were spoken prior to Jesus that are fulfilled in Jesus. The number is 332, according to this counter. Now, uh, Gordon MacDonald has, uh, not Gordon MacDonald, Josh McDowell and uh, another man named Stoner has, have addressed this in more detail, if you care to read. But uh, this man named Mr. Stoner said, if eight prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus' life, what's the probability factor? What's the likelihood that that could actually happen mathematically? And again, I'm relying on his numbers, but he, he figured this out. And what he said was, that it's 1 to the power, to 10 to the 17th power. That's the chance. Now, let me illustrate that in a way that I understand because the math confuses me. Uh, he's saying now, if eight prophecies in Jesus' life were fulfilled, what's the probability of that? Well, it's 10 to the 17th power. What's, what's that about? Well, picture um, a silver dollar. Anybody have a silver dollar? No. Um, somebody gave me this. It's a, it's a U.S. mint silver dollar, and uh, that's about the right size. We're not talking about these little dollars they give you now that are not dollars. This is a real silver dollar. And you can see the size, sort of. Now, pretend that you had silver dollars, and you were going to... This is 10 to the 17th power. Ted, am I saying that right? Okay. Um, pretend that we're going to fill up the state of Texas with these. According to Mr. Stoner, you would have silver dollars all over the state of the Texas, two feet deep. That's 10 to the 17th power. Big number. Okay? Now, suppose with me that you're going to mark one of them, and you put it back in the stack, and then you stir up all these silver dollars in Texas. Got it? And then the assignment is for another person who's blindfolded, on the first try to go and find that silver dollar. That's the probability of eight prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus' lifetime, according to Mr. Stoner. Pretty high, pretty, you get the deal? Now, if you tried to figure that out with 300 plus, you know, it would be a ridiculous number. I want to show you a couple of examples of what we're talking about. I said we'd get to the Bible, so now we are. If you'll turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter uh, 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Page 636. Hear those pages turning? That's a great sound. Isaiah 7, or page 636. 
And we're going to look at verse 14. We're jumping into the middle of a prophecy Isaiah gives to King Ahaz. And he says in verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman, or virgin, is with child, and shall bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. Now that's a prophecy. This woman's going to give birth to a son. His name's going to be Emmanuel. If you'll turn over to the first page of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. They start the numbering in this Bible again in the New Testament. So Matthew chapter 1, page 1. And we're going to read about the story of Jesus' birth. And you remember the story. This is a little pre-Christmas information for you. You remember the story of how Joseph is engaged to Mary. She's pregnant. Joseph thinks this is a scandal. And he's about to do away with her when the angel comes and says, No, this is not a scandal. You're going to take Mary as his wife. And it's explained to Joseph. This is the story about that. And in verse um, 22, it says, All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. That's the fulfillment of a prophecy. Now, the gospel writer, Matthew, inspired by the Spirit of God, is saying, Whoa! What happened in Jesus was foretold by Isaiah. He talked about the coming of the Messiah. Jesus fits that. Now, one other example, and again, hundreds could be given. But uh, go back to the Old Testament. Keep your finger in that New Testament passage in Matthew. We're going to come back there. So keep your finger there and go to page 865. Micah. If you find Micah further than you can find the page number, you can go that route. Uh, 865, the book of Micah. And we're going to look at chapter 5. Eight hundred and sixty, page 865, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Again, the prophet speaking, and it says, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days. Now, what I, the only thing I want to highlight there is the location, Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, there's someone's going to come forth from Bethlehem. Now flip back over to page 2 of Matthew, chapter 2. And this is the story after Jesus has been born that you're very familiar with. The wise men come to see Jesus. And when they arrive in Judah, they don't know where to go. We've seen his star in the east. We've come to worship him. But where is he? We've got the general location down, but our GPS system isn't real good. And so we can't hone in on exactly where he's at. So what do they do? They ask the scholars of the day where to find him. What do they do? They read their Bibles. And in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the time of King Herod, Jesus was born where? In Bethlehem. And as you scan down through there, you'll see in verse 6 where it quotes that very verse. So Matthew is again saying this is exactly what was foretold in the Old Testament. Yet another prophecy. And all I'm saying is that this kind of uh, accuracy of prophecy indicates the reliability of the Scripture as it speaks to us about Jesus. So is the Bible true? Well, of course it's true. I think it's true. And I hope you think it's true. That's why you're here this morning. And I hope this has encouraged you a bit in the accuracy and truthfulness of the Bible. Now, I want to ask two other questions. 
The first question uh, that I want to ask in conclusion is, Steve, what about you? How is the Bible true for you? And I'd like to answer that. And the last question I'm going to ask is, well, is the Bible true for you? How would you answer it? The Bible, of course, is true for me. I've spent my life trying to read it, understand it, teach it, and preach it. And I'm very glad to be speaking about that today. And as I thought about this question, I thought, wow, I'd love to just preach a sermon on this subject. How has the Bible impacted my life? But I don't have time for a whole sermon, and you don't want to sit through that anymore today. So let me just say a couple of quick things about how I see Scripture impacting my life. And the first one is this. The Bible has pointed me to salvation and forgiveness. The Bible has pointed me to salvation and forgiveness. Uh, if you would not, if you don't mind, we're going to turn to a couple other passages in page, page 160 in the New Testament. Romans chapter 10 is another place to go to. Um, as I read the Bible, it tells me who I am. The Bible says in the earlier chapters of Romans and many other places, the Bible says, Steve, there's something wrong with you. Thanks for not amening. But, you know, it says, uh, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It talks about uh, the, deceitful of the deceitfulness of the heart. It says these things, and as I read them, I have to agree. You know, you're right about me. <laughs> I recognize there is something wrong. There's a brokenness. The Bible calls that sin. And I don't have to be convinced of the sinfulness of my own ways. And the Bible says that to me about uh, my character and about myself, about all of us. But not only that, it doesn't leave me there. And in the book of Romans, I turned here because the Bible talks to me about salvation and forgiveness. And in Romans chapter 10, what a wonderful passage on page 160. Uh, let's begin reading with verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart, one believes with the heart and is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. Now, I've done that. I've read that, and I've accepted it, and I've confessed Jesus with my mouth, I've believed in my heart, and I have no doubt God has saved me. Hallelujah! How about you? Is that true for you? Could you say hallelujah? Hallelujah! Hallelujah. Say it again. Hallelujah! And so one reason I believe the Bible is simply, it works for me. I know I'm saved. Now, in uh, another passage in 1 John 1.9, this idea about forgiveness, I got saved, but... uh, you know, I'm not perfect, and I continue to sin. And so I have this very high standard, which I read about in Scripture, and these ethical values we read about, this way of living for God that we read about, and I say, wow, it's way up there, and I'm kind of like a person walking on their knees. I just don't get it very often, or I don't get it right or completely. I sin. What about that? Well, First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin... God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I've used that verse over and over and over. I'm glad you can reuse that verse. It's not a one-time affair. And I've used it. How about you? And so when I 
wrestle with the question, the Bible's role in my life, I realize it brought me to salvation. It helps me as I continue in my life seeking to live for God, but failing, I know how to confess my sins. Now, let me give you just one other uh, scripture. Uh, the Bible not only has brought me salvation and teaches me about forgiveness, it, is a, it gives me guidance. You don't need to look this up. Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, is all about the Bible. And it says there, Thy word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. It gives me direction. Now, this book, if you have to go buy a car today, it's not going to tell you what car to buy. This is not a magic book. It's not going to tell you who the next president of the United States is going to be. And if you try to use it like that, you're misusing the Bible. It's not a magic book. But the Bible is a book that can guide you on the great matters of your life and show you the way so that you can walk in it. It's a light unto my feet. And it's done that for me. And finally, the Bible provides lifelong learning for me. The last scripture I'd like you to look at is to uh, page 212, the book of Timothy, the second letter of Paul to Timothy. And as he wraps up chapter 3 of that letter on page 212, here's what Paul says. All scripture, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful. What's it useful for, Paul? It's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient and equipped for every good work. Hallelujah. The Bible does that for us. And it's done that for me. I cannot imagine who I would be or where I would be if I were not a Bible reader. I'm sure I would have blown my marriage long time ago and wouldn't be married. If I were not a Bible reader, I definitely wouldn't be standing up here this morning. If I were not a Bible reader, I'm sure I would not have the positive, valuable relationship I have with my children and their wives and my grandchildren that I have. I'm, I bet Steve would not be a great guy to be around if I weren't a Bible reader. It has so shaped my life and calls me to be a better person than I would be without this book. I'm enthusiastic about being a Bible reader. I believe the Bible's true. What about you? On this outline, there's a little grid I'd like you to look at in conclusion. And I, I really have two questions. Uh, is the Bible true for you? And that grid, you can answer it a little bit, not at all, completely. You can fill that out as you think about it. But more important than that, here's what my worry is about this morning. You'll say, yes, Steve, I believe the Bible. I believe, we even says genuine Corinthian leather, and I believe that too, you know. I believe uh, the maps in it. I believe the whole thing. And you can get all inspired talking about how you believe the Bible. But uh, there's another question. A lot of us believe in exercise, don't we? Uh-huh. But we don't do it. A lot of us believe we ought to vote sometimes. But we, there are lots of things we believe, but we don't practice. And I would say, and I'm, I'm not sure I want to say this, but I would almost say more important than whether you believe the Bible fully, do you read it? And especially important, don't be a believer of the Bible who just sets it down and says, greatest book in the world, and you never crack it open. So my hope is that you leave here today determined to be a Bible reader, that if you're not in a small group, you signed up to be there or be in a Sunday school class or some way that puts you in touch with other people of faith who are reading the Bible with you. I also hope that on, a, on an individual level, you turn to this more than on Sunday morning. That there's some way in which in your life you've structured in the reality that I, I read this book for myself. 
I feed myself out of the Word of God because that's so essential. So I, I hope that you realize the Bible is the greatest book in the world. And beyond that, that you take it to use for yourself. So I hope this morning that you're a hearer of the Word of God, that you're a believer in the Word of God, and that you're a doer of the Word of God. May it be so in our lives. The Lord help you as you read your Bible. Amen.